Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Malachi. We'll be spending the next several weeks there. If you haven't gotten a copy of the notes for Malachi yet, there are still a few available in the back as you came in. You're welcome to have a copy of of those. Those have some helpful uh, tools in there for you. Uh, The book of Malachi, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, is what we'll be looking at today. But before we get to that, I want to set the stage a little bit for us uh, in understanding this text. Um, Any Princess Bride fans in the house today? Uh, Anyone ever seen Princess Bride? Usually there's two sides. You either love it or you hate it. Uh, If you've never seen it, uh, here's a spoiler alert. So if you're planning to go watch it, I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin it for you. But the story is a romantic comedy. And I know that I probably don't look like I enjoy romantic comedies, but I do from time to time. In this romantic comedy, there's two main characters. There is Wesley and Princess Buttercup. And Wesley is a poor farmer, and Buttercup is a princess. And the story is about this unlikely love that happens between a a poor farm boy and a princess. But what happens is that the farm boy gets called off to war. And in the process of war, the dread pirate Roberts overtakes their ship, and it's announced that Wesley is killed in the battle. But what we come to find out later is that Wesley isn't actually killed in the battle. He becomes the dread pirate Roberts. And in an effort to to come back to his love, Buttercup, he finds out that Buttercup is engaged to another man, that she has moved on, it seems, away from her Wesley. And he comes back, and, and he attempts to reconcile with her. She's actually being kidnapped, and he takes her from the kidnappers. And there's an interchange that happens between the two of them. And when Buttercup meets Wesley for the the second time, she doesn't know that he's Wesley. She believes him to be the dread pirate Roberts. And their interchange goes like this. Buttercup says to the supposed dread pirate Roberts, "You, you killed my love. And the dread pirate Roberts says, it's possible I kill a lot of people. Who was this love of yours? Another prince like this one, ugly, rich? Buttercup says, no, a farm boy, poor, poor and perfect, with eyes like the sea after a storm on the high seas. Your ship attacked, and the dread pirate Roberts never takes prisoners. The dread pirate Roberts says, I can't afford to make exceptions. I mean, once the word leaks out that a pirate has gone soft, people begin to disobey, and then it's nothing but work, work, work all the time. And Buttercup says, you mock my pain. And he says, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling you something. I remember this farm boy of yours, I think. This would be, what, five years ago? Does it bother to hear you? She says, nothing you can say will upset me. He says, he died well. That should please you. No bribe attempts or blubbering. He simply said, please, please, I need to live. It was the please that caught my memory. I asked him what was so important for him. True love, he replied. And then he spoke of a girl of surpassing beauty and faithfulness. I can only assume he meant you. 
You should bless me for destroying him before he found out what you are that day. Buttercup says, and what am I? Faithless. Faithfulness, he talked of, madame. You enduring faithfulness. Now, tell me truly, when you found out he was gone, did you get engaged to your prince at that same hour, or did you wait a whole week out of respect for the dead? You mocked me once, she said. Never do it again. I died that day, and you can die too for all I care. And in a moment of haste, she pushed him down the hill, and she hears this face, these fateful words. If you are familiar with the story, one of the ways that they interacted with each other in the beginning was she bossed him around, and he always says, as you wish. And as she pushes him down the hill, she hears the words, as you wish, and realizes that she has, in fact, shoved her true love down the hill who has come back for her. And she says, oh, my sweet Leslie, what have I done? And then she throws herself tumbling down the hill after him. All of this silliness to to remind us that it is oftentimes easy to question someone's love. They might do something or not do something that would lead us to believe that they don't love us anymore. And and we might even be tempted to ask the question, do they love us? Now, as Christians, there's even a more dangerous question that we might ask. If the circumstances of our lives don't work out exactly like we would have hoped them to, if we face more adversity than we thought we should, we, we may be even tempted to ask the question, does God really love us? You see, as humans, it can be easy to fall into the trap of doubting God's love for us. But God's love for his people is evident in his choosing them and protecting them by destroying their enemies to bring them joyful deliverance. That's the thesis for today. So I want to encourage you to stand with me for, with a reading from the Word of God, Malachi chapter 1 where we seek to answer this question that's being posed, does God really love us? Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 2, says this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. One of the first evidences of God's love that the prophet Malachi points out to the people of Israel is what we would refer to as God's electing love. Now, it had been some time since a prophet had spoke to Israel. And so Malachi finds his audience skeptical and filled with resignation. The people respond to his reading of reform with belligerent antagonism. So he uses interrogation and reply in an attempt to get through to them. And we're going to see these six different disputations and responses. He's going to give them an interrogating question, and they're going to reply to it. 
And, and I want you to think about this just for a moment. Remember, we talked last week about an oracle, that, that the prophet Malachi is giving an oracle from the Lord, and oftentimes the oracle has ominous implications, that it's a, a message of trouble and doom. But look at chapter 1, verse 2. What are the first words of the oracle from God to the nation of Israel? I have loved you. And I think this sets the tone really for the rest of the oracle, that God is immediately communicating to his people that he loves them. Well, why would he do this? The love of God is the most powerful or one of the most powerful motivations to serve him, isn't it? There is no greater love that we will ever receive in our lives than the love of God. Now, in this particular interaction, we're going to discuss in a moment their response, how have you loved us? But the prophet Malachi is going to begin giving evidences as to how the Lord has loved them. And in chapter, the second part of verse 2, he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? This is going to be the beginning of this building of a demonstration of God's love. And he's asking a rhetorical question that is the foundation to the next statement. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, yet I have loved Jacob. Now, we're already just two verses into this book. And we're about to hit something that's often difficult for people to process and understand. I have loved Jacob. Now, this is very important that we get this right out of the gate. Love is a technical covenant word. It's technical covenant vocabulary. It means elective choosing. What God is doing here, what the prophet is doing, is reminding them of his love, and he's actually giving them a chance to turn back to him. This is one of the greatest messages of all of Scripture, that God loves us in spite of ourselves, that God loves us even though we, we struggle and we sin and we disobey his word and we do things that are dishonoring to him, that he loves his people in spite of that. The Old Testament especially is filled with these, this idea that God loves, in particular, Israel in spite of what they have done. There are multiple passages that po point this out, like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8, or Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. But maybe one of the books of the Bible in which this is pointed out in the most starkly contrasted of ways is in the book of Hosea. In particular, in chapter 3, verse 1. If you're familiar with the book of Hosea, God calls out to a husband to bring back to himself a wife who has been unfaithful to him. In fact, she has been a prostitute. And God calls Hosea to bring his wife back to him, even though she has done nothing to earn his love. And in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, God compares Israel to the adulterous wife. And even in spite of her adultery, even in spite of her unfaithfulness, the nation of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, he loves them anyways. 
This should be an incredible truth to you today, that, that if God has called you into salvation, He loves you even though you're still going to struggle with sin. Because this side of eternity, none of us are perfect. Every one of us is going to struggle with something, and it's going to potentially look different for each one of us. But even when you struggle with sin, God loves you, and he gave himself for you. And we're going to say more on this later. But here's where it starts to get hard. Because we can understand God as love. Many of us know that God is love. God loves us. But then the next phrase in verse 3 tests our thinking a little bit. It says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, how does a God who is love hate someone? How does he choose to love one and hate the other? Let me help you hopefully put this in perspective. Hate, again, here is a technical term, meaning to reject with strong feelings. And just in case you think that this is exclusively in the Old Testament, Romans 9.13 quotes this passage when talking about who God chooses for salvation. So this isn't exclusively an Old Testament idea. This is carried into the New Testament as well. One of the passages in the New Testament that I think is very helpful in understanding this idea of love versus hate is Luke chapter 14, verse 22. Many of us are familiar with this passage. It talks about how if we're to be a true disciple of Christ, there are some things that we have to hate. That as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it may come to the point that we would appear to hate our own families and even hate our own life. But if we understand this term through the lens of covenant terminology, it means that we would reject the sinful ways of our family and even reject and give up our own lives if that's the cost of following Jesus Christ and being his disciple. That as he has chosen us in love, we would reject anything that doesn't encourage us to be a disciple of his. For those of us who have unbelieving family, this may look like at times we hate them because we don't go along with what they're doing. And they may attempt to put a lot of pressure on us to get to go along with them in the sins that they're committing. But we reject their sinful deeds and in a sense reject them. But here's something that, that needs to be very clear in this passage as we're talking about Jacob and Esau and ultimately two nations. God's choosing of these nations doesn't mean that all of Israel was redeemed. And it doesn't mean that God's rejecting indicates that all of the Edomites were not saved or that they couldn't be saved. God's using of them or rejecting of them as a nation has implications that are larger, but it doesn't mean that those inside of those nations couldn't be saved or would be saved, if that makes sense. But let's fast forward to the New Testament. Let's go again to the New Testament, because one of the things I want to do through this whole series is help you connect the Old Testament and the New Testament together. So let's go to the New Testament and see a connection between this passage and what we see in the New Testament. Open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And let's see if we see some language in Ephesians in the New Testament that's similar to what we see here in Malachi. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Let's connect some passages together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, what are the next two words? In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. You see, that the same electing love that God extends to the people of, the, of Israel in the Old Testament, he has now extended to us as New Testament believers. Let's focus in on verse 4 and 5 for a second. These are these type of passages where we have to stop and ponder for a moment to increase our, uh, our worship of God and our glorification of Him when we think about what He has done for us. In verse 5, or verse 4, it tells us He chose us before the foundation of the world. That means that he chose us before you and I ever took our first breath, before the world was ever even formed. He set us apart to live holy lives for him. That means that God loved you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he loved you before the world was formed. That he had predestined his love for you before you were ever even alive. And in a very real sense, this should increase our, our praise and worship of God to know what, to choose us knowing what we would become. God knew everything that you would do in your life, and, and yet he decided to choose you before you sinned against him. Friends, this should make us marvel at the incredible love of God for us. And how did he choose us? This passage tells us that in love, he adopted us as children. This is such a beautiful picture of what the electing love of God is like. Because when you decide to have a, a baby, a, a biological child, you don't get to pick if it's a boy or a girl or what color hair they will have or what their disposition will be. You get what God gives you. And it's a bit of a roll of the dice. And it's actually amazing with our four kids, how different they are from each other. They, they are very different. But in adoption, parents are literally saying, I choose you. I choose you to be my child. And in that moment, they're in a very real sense evidencing the electing love of God upon that child. That's what God has done for us. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world, to be his children. You see, God loves us so much that he chose us before we ever took our first breath and then worked out the timeline of history in which his son would die for our sins that through Christ we could be adopted into the family of God. If you think about all of the details that God had to work out in his electing love to call you to salvation in himself, steam should start to come out of your ears as your brain tries to process that. 
What an amazing love that God has extended to us. But if we're honest, if we're honest about our walk with Christ, there is a sinful tendency that I would dare to say all of us have to doubt God's love. Look at Malachi chapter 1. Turn back over to Malachi chapter 1 in the middle of verse 2. After God confesses his love for the nation of Israel through the prophet Malachi, what is their response? How? How have you loved us? You see, they questioned God, and they asked the prophet for proof of God's love. And in that moment, they missed the point of God's love, so he contrasts his dealing with them versus Edom. Now, there's something very dangerous that we can do in this particular text, because we might rush to going, how could the nation of Israel ever doubt the love of God for them? Don't they remember when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt? Don't they remember how they were released from Babylonian captivity? Don't they remember all the times in which he protected them? And we might be quick to rush to judge them without realizing that most of the time in the biblical stories, there is a character that we play in this story, that it's meant to reveal to us what we're like. And I want to suggest to you that in this particular story, more often than not, we're not the prophet Malachi. We're definitely not God. So that only leaves one other character, that we're, in fact, depicted as the nation of Israel. And let me venture to prove it to you for a minute. Have you ever had something difficult happen in your life? And you're very quick to ask this question, why is this happening to me? And in that moment, essentially, we're doing something very similar to what's happening here. Because the nation of Israel is posing to God this particular question, what have you done for me lately? Now, I'm, I will confess to you, and, and I think if you're being honest, you'll confess as well, that I have been tempted to ask this question of God more often than I would like to admit. Things don't work out the way that I would want them to. Family member gets a diagnosis that I don't like. I will even admit to you that sometimes I wake up in the morning and my back hurts, and I question God for that. But in that moment, I am so minimizing the sovereign care of God to even give me the breath in my lungs to be able to ask the question, why are you doing this to me? This is such an easy trap for all of us to fall into. And I'm, I'm going to, to give us a, a remedy from the text in a moment. But before we get to that, I, I want to, to take you to where this argument is built in the New Testament. Will you turn in your Bibles over to the book of Romans? 
Because I, I want to give, especially, because I understand when I'm talking about difficult details, difficult like circumstances, that I'm talking about heavy things. That there may be things in our life that we experience that are very difficult that push us to even question God himself. And we, we need to know what the Bible says about how to respond to those scenarios. I think one of the best places, and especially where we can connect to the New Testament through this passage, is in the book of Romans. There's a whole section from 38 through 39 of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Probably in your Bible it says above verse 31 something like, God's everlasting love. Because all of us at points and times need to be reminded of the power of God given towards us. And in these moments when there is something that comes into our lives that encourages us to doubt God's power, to doubt His goodness, to doubt whether or not we're near to Him or He's far from us. We need to remember passages like Romans chapter 8, in particular verses 38 and 39. Listen to these words. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation. So let's pause. Is there anything that has not made the list? Is there anything that we're going to experience in life that hasn't made the list here? He has shored up anything that could potentially between, come between us and God. And how does he verse, finish verse 39? Nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what, church? The love of God. And so when God enters into the book of Malachi and he says, I have loved you, those hearers in the nation of Israel, along with us as hearers today, can go to the book of Romans and go to the book of Malachi and know what is it that separates us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whatever you're experiencing today, here's what you can know for sure. Once God chooses you, you can never be separated from him. Even if you have periods of sin and failure, God's love still holds on to us. Just as he held on to those who now doubt his love in the book of Malachi. And nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. Turn back over with me to the book of Malachi. Let's look at a few more verses here. In answering the question that the Israelites have posed to God, how have you loved us? God's going to give them some evidence. Some evidence of his love in his protection from their enemies. You see, the, the picture that's being painted for us here in Jacob and Esau is of actually two separate nations. Jacob is Israel's line who serves God, 
and Edom is Esau's line, and they rebel against God and seek to hurt God's people. Genesis chapter 25 verse 23 talks about this. When uh, the pregnancy is announced of these two men, Jacob and uh, Esau, when they're in their mother's womb, the Bible tells us that there are two nations in her womb, that Jacob represents the nation of Israel and Esau represents the nation of Edom. Now, Edom is actually a bit of a play on words uh, to connect it with the color red. Where the Edomites live, their land is red. Esau was reddish at his birth. Think about this one for a moment. When Esau and Jacob uh, have their conflict, the, the stew that Esau wanted from his brother, can you guess what color it was? It's red. Esau's descendants, the Edomites, they live south and east of Israel. They live across the great rift of the Jordan Valley, south of the Dead Sea. You can read more about Esau's descendants, the Edomites, in Genesis 36. It gives a whole list there. But Esau and Jacob's conflict as brothers continues on through history in the nations of Israel and Edom. And Edom is considered a brother nation uh, to Israel. And they actually become a picture of hostility toward Israel and God. There are multiple passages in the Old Testament that talk about judgment that God was going to pass on Edom. Here's just a few. Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 7 through 22. Ezekiel 25, 12 through 14. And Amos 1, 11 through 12. Jeremiah 49, 7 through 12. Ezekiel 25, 12 through 14, Amos 1, 11 through 12. These are all passages that talk about God passing judgment on Edom. One of the ways that we see Edom not helping Israel at all is that when Israel comes out of captivity in Egypt, they're passing to the promised land, and they have the opportunity to pass through where the Edomites live. And instead of allowing them to pass through, the Edomites make the Israelites go all the way around through the desert to get through the promised land. So even when they had the opportunity to help them and it wouldn't really cost them anything, they don't. And on top of that, it appears that when the Babylonians come to take the Israelites into captivity, that Edom actually rejoices in Psalm 137, verse 7, of the destruction of of Israel. But did you, did you know that there is a prominent Edomite in the New Testament? Later, Edom settles in the Negev Desert in a region called Idumea. And the Romans installed an Idumean on the throne during Jesus' time. It's probably due to a bribe. But this Edomite is one that we're all familiar with. It's Herod. So there's an animosity between the Jews and Herod at the crucifixion of Jesus. And many think that it's just because of the Roman occupation, but it actually has as much to do with the fact that Herod is an Edomite and there's a conflict between nations happening in that moment. But there's something that's told us about the Lord here in verse 4. It says, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, right? So the Lord is constantly tearing them down, and they want to rebuild. The the Lord speaks, 
And this text calls him something in particular. It says he is the Lord of hosts. He is the sovereign Lord over all great empires. The Lord of hosts is used by prophets to indicate that God will act because he has the power to do so. So essentially he's saying they may build, but I will tear down. The picture that's being painted here is the fact that Israel continues to flourish while Edom is destroyed. Israel's continued lineage, despite all the attempts to kill them, shows God's love for them. And this happens all the way down to the greatest evidence and demonstration of God's love. Church, do you know what the greatest evidence and demonstration of God's love is? You want to take a wild guess at it? Let's say it all together. Jesus. Jesus is the greatest demonstration of love ever given by God. And part of God's provision and protection of the nation of Israel carries them all the way through to Jesus Christ. You see, what we're finding in this particular passage is that Jacob, in the electing love of God, was chosen to bless the world through Jesus Christ. But the picture that's being painted here for us in the book of Malachi is the love of God demonstrated to the nation of Israel. And the way that he's demonstrating this is by their physical protection from any kind of enemies, namely the Edomites in this particular passage. But let's make a connection to the New Testament about this idea of God's love being manifested in God's protection and the defeat of our enemies. Now, where might we find something like that in the New Testament? Turn over to the book of Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. In the New Testament, there isn't a nation necessarily that's described as the greatest enemies of Christians or the greatest enemies of mankind. What are the greatest enemies that are mentioned in the New Testament? Sin and death, and by extension, the devil. Now, what does it say that Jesus is going to do to those? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook in the same things, that through death, talking about Jesus, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Brothers and sisters, God didn't stop protecting his people in the Old Testament. He protects us today. And he has protected us in providing eternal security through our salvation from sin and death and the devil. So when we see God protecting the Israelites in the book of Malachi or all throughout the Old Testament, be reminded he is protecting you today through the blood of Jesus Christ. And even in terms of the church itself, the Bible tells us that the very gates of hell will not be able to prevail against Christ's church. That through Jesus Christ, he has provided protection for us and a guarantee that our enemies will be defeated. Turn back over with me to the book of Malachi for one last point before we wrap up. 
One of the things that we see at the end of verses 4 and verse 5 is that the Lord will judge the world eternally. We see this in the beginning of his judgment of the nation of Edom, and we see this by the two names that he gives to the Edomites. He names them the wicked country at the end of verse 4, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now, wicked country by implication, if we're drawing this connection from our enemies in the New Testament, who is actually still our enemy in the Old Testament, this wicked country has implications in terms of the kingdom of Satan. They have united themselves with the devil and his plan, and they are permanently, God is permanently displeased with them. The picture that's being painted here is the one of judgment. And what's being communicated to us is that God will judge the enemies of his people because the enemies of his people are his enemies as well. He says, your eyes shall see. Your own eyes shall see this. This is this continuing prophecy of the, the coming devastation of Edom. Now, just to be clear, it's not that these people of Israel will see it, but at some point in the future, the nation of Israel will see it. There's a similar idea communicated in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. But when they see this, when they see this destruction of their enemies, how will they respond, does this text tell? When you see this, you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Great is the Lord in his judgment of those who are opposing him. What happens in this moment? is that when God comes to judge the world, the small concerns that the nation of Israel has will matter no more in light of his judgment on the world. This gives us hope that even now we can continue to live in such a way that brings him glory, knowing that there is a day coming in which his glory will be manifested in the judgment against those who oppose him. That that we can continue striving, knowing that those who resist the Lord will not be able to resist him forever. I mentioned earlier Matthew 24 and 25 and the Olivet Discourse. Let me mention a few verses to you to make a connection to the New Testament in Matthew 25. If you turn over to Matthew 25, what you might find is that there's a similar format as Malachi. That there's a question and an answer, especially from those who are going to be judged. Matthew 25, in particular, starting in verse 31, and I think sometimes we need to just hear these words and be reminded of what the future holds. Matthew 25, verse 31 says this, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then we will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, that's intended to mean everyone, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Now, jump down a few verses to verse 37 in Matthew 25. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in the prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Question, answer. Jump down a few more verses to verse 46 of Matthew 25. This is those who are on the goat side. This is how they respond. They will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, if we sum all this together, in the end, we will all be separated into two groups by the judgment of God, into what this passage calls the sheep and the goats. And these two categories represent those who believed in God for salvation and those who didn't. One will spend eternity with God in heaven, and one will spend eternity in punishment. These, these two passages together should encourage us to reflect on what we're living for today. And friend, if you're here today, I'm going to say this even more clearly in a moment. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, no one can stand before the judgment seat of God on their own merit. They won't be able to. They will be separated into the category of goats. The only thing that allows us to be separated as sheep is the blood of our true shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to call upon you on a moment. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've not accepted him as the Savior of, who paid for your sins and is now your Lord, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a moment. But one of the things I want to encourage you to do through this whole series, I'm going to try and condense this down as we go, is to make the connection, not just between the Old and the New Testament, but to make the connection from the passage in Malachi to your own life. And remember last week I, I introduced you to something you may already be familiar with. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That it talks about how the Word of God is breathed out, the Bible is breathed out from God and is profitable for several things. One of the first things that it says it's profitable for is doctrine. There are four main doctrines discussed in just these few verses. God's electing love, God's protecting love, sinful human nature, and the coming judgment. Those are the four main doctrines that are taught in this particular passage. Once we understand the teaching of the Scripture, once we understand the doctrine that's communicated there, then the question that flows out of that is, where does my thinking need corrected? So the Scriptures are profitable for doctrine, but they're also profitable for correction. This is where you have to actually do some work, though. You have to do some real thinking and soul-searching to hold up what you believe to be true in light of what the Scripture says. And it starts with sitting down with this passage and the passages that I've given today and asking, do I believe they are true? And not just do I believe they are true, do I think they are right? You see, the world and the devil are constantly battling for your mind. The devil, from the beginning, wants to trick you into believing that God's Word isn't true and what he is saying cannot be right. 
And in this day and age, the world is bombarding us with all kinds of ideas that are contrary to the Word of God, so much so that we have to go back constantly and sort our hearts and minds in terms of the teaching of the Word of God. We have to be engaged in the battle for our minds. Once we're working on correcting our thinking and our our belief, the next question that we need to ask out of that text is, where does my behavior need change? Where does it need reproved? Or in other words, am I living in doubt of God's love and protection in this particular text? Let me give you three ways that, that you might be doing this. One, am I expecting more than God has promised? You see, God never promised health, wealth, prosperity, but he has promised joy and peace in him, not in the things of this world. But the world and the devil, again, want us to believe that there is more joy to be had in the temporal things of this world than there is in God. And if we buy into that, we will will live expecting more from God than he has promised. This is the trap that the nation of Israel finds themselves caught in. They want blessings from God, but they don't want to live for God. They're expecting more from Him than He has actually promised, and so they've become disgruntled with Him. Number two, second way that you might be living in doubt of God's love. Are you struggling, or am I struggling, with fear and anxiety? Can we just confess for a moment? I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older or what's happening, but the world seems as uncertain as it ever has. Like the future seems incredibly unsure to me, especially in terms of the direction of our nation. It's very hard to see where all of this ends in terms of what happens in this country that we live in. But we've got to be reminded that we worship the Lord of hosts who is in control of everything and has the power to act according to his will. And instead of living in fear and anxiety, let us see his faithfulness in the past and allow that to be a foundation of our trust in the future. When we struggle with fear and anxiety, the Bible teaches us to do three things. Remember the faithfulness of God in the past. In prayer, trust him with our future and live today for his glory. When I'm struggling with fear and anxiety, let me say this to you again. The Bible teaches us to primarily do three things. Remember the faithfulness of God in the past. In prayer, trust him with our future and live today for his glory. This is the process of how we make war against fear and anxiety. Number three, have I confessed Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Friend, you you might be doubting or living in doubt of God's love and, and protection by doubting whether or not Jesus Christ loved you enough to die for your sins. And let me just say to you that the Scriptures have made it clear that Jesus Christ loved us so much that He stepped down from heaven to die on the cross and shed his blood for sinners like you and me. And do not doubt when the scriptures say that there is a judgment that is coming, that every one of us 
will give an account for the way that we lived our lives and what we did with Jesus Christ. And the question to you today is, where will you stand? Will you be counted among the sheep who are covered by the blood of Christ? Or will you be separated with the goats who have rejected Jesus Christ and his salvation? But then one final point, what is the instruction in righteousness from this passage? Let me say there, there are two. The way in which we should go about living this out also is, number one, proclaim the goodness of God in his salvation and protection. You see, it's not enough for us to just remember the past in terms of God's faithfulness to us. We need to be quick to share that protection and his salvation with others. And and so here's my challenge to you to this week. I want you to write down one or two names of people, two different people, who you're going to tell about the goodness of God by providing salvation and protection in your life. Two people that you know do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that you're going to share with them the goodness of God in his salvation and protection. Now, all of us will have several stories of protection that God has given us because even though some of us have experienced car accidents here on Long Island, uh, many of us have been protected on a daily basis just from driving here. So if you've driven on Long Island and you don't get in an accident every day, you have a story of God's protection over you. Amen? But there are any number of ways that we can account for God's protection in our lives if we're thinking about it. And ultimately, his protection for us is his salvation through Jesus Christ. So let them see God's goodness in your story and offer his gospel of saving grace to them as well. Don't forget how powerful your own personal testimony is in proclaiming the goodness of God. And then number two, let your life give testimony to God and his eternal love. You see, one of the purposes of God in choosing Israel was to set them apart and bless them so that the world around them would look at them and go, man, their God must be awesome. He separated for himself a people to make his glory known. And brothers and sisters, he's still doing that today. Use your life Use your pursuit of holiness. Use your pursuit of being a blessing to others. Use the very way that you live, not for your own glory, but to magnify the glory of God so that when people look at our lives and they look at the way that we live and they look at the holiness that, they pers- that we pursue, their only response has to be, man, their God must be awesome. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us do that today. Lord, every time we think about your love, we're amazed. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we've done nothing to earn it. That it's only by your choice that we got to experience it. Lord, help us to live today in light of this incredible love that you've extended to us, that you have brought us all the way to this moment, you've protected us, and even if we were to perish today, you'll protect us in eternity, 
there are so many ways in which we would recall and remember your love for us. Lord, help us, help us to continue to remember your protection and your care for us in the past. And Lord, help this to become the fuel by which we live for your glory today. Lord, we may be tempted, there may be someone who's even tempted now to, to doubt your love, to doubt your goodness. Lord, I, I pray that through this sermon, through these songs, through the prayers that are being offered today, that they would be reminded and experience your love. Lord, if there is anyone who is here today who is under the sound of my voice watching online, that does not know you as their Savior, that, that they would hear clearly that they are sinners bound for judgment. And the only way to escape that judgment is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And in this moment, I pray that you would call them to yourself and that they would cry out to you and ask for forgiveness and receive you as their Savior and Lord. But Lord, as this time together comes to a close and we think about uh, separating and going to our homes and to the grocery or wherever else we have to go today, that we would be reminded to live in light of your love and your glory, that your goodness and your protection to us would, would shine through us to be a light in the world around us, that, that the world might know how awesome you truly are because of the way that we live and testify to you. Thank you for these stories, these uh, pictures in the Old Testament of, of your love, even with a rebellious people. Help us to be amazed by your goodness and your glory and to live each day in light of that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.